Amen. Amen. In his 1973 book, Whatever Became of Sin, psychiatrist Carl Menninger wrote, The very word sin, which seems to have disappeared, was once a proud word. It was once a strong word, an ominous and serious word. But the word went away. It has almost disappeared. The word along with the notion, why? Doesn't anyone sin anymore? Doesn't anyone believe in sin? To reinforce his observations, Dr. Menninger noted that in the presidential proclamation for the annual National Day of Prayer, the last time the word sin was mentioned was in President Eisenhower's proclamation in 1953. And those words were borrowed from a call to national prayer by Abraham Lincoln in 1863. So as Dr. Menninger observed... As a nation, we have officially ceased sinning. He's certainly not alone in his assessment. Peter Barnes, in an article titled, What? Me? A Sinner? He wrote, In 20th century England, C.S. Lewis noted that the barrier I have met is the almost total absence from the minds of my audience of any sense of sin. D.A. Carson commented that the most frustrating aspect of doing evangelism in universities is the fact that students generally have no idea of sin. They know how to sin well enough, but they have no idea what constitutes sin. Now, those are disturbing statements, but we see it so clearly, don't we? Our culture is seeped in sin. Our culture with the protesting and the protest that I'm talking about that has been the destruction of property, the type of protest that, that have taken place that says, I'm going to destroy you and destroy all that you believe because I disagree with what you believe and the only belief that you need to affirm is what I believe. And it's amazing that that's where we have come as a culture. When I was in the hospital and I was uh, noticing the many hours I was in the ER, I'm talking many hours, I spent about a full 24 hours in the, in the ER, and where they had me in the ER was where the criminals were also brought. Yeah, it made me feel like a criminal but escorted in front of me over and over and over were men and women in handcuffs. And even at one point while I was laying in the bed dealing with my issues, I was listening to the lady next to me who kept saying, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. And it just went on for like two hours. In fact, I was going to die from listening to that over and over. And then a few minutes later, I heard some guy in the little ways from me just go off into a rant of uh, very bad language. I don't know if he was taking it out on the doctor or taking it out on the nurse, but it wasn't good. But I was listening to all that and, and then just kind of observing 
my surroundings, especially after they moved me in the hall for about five hours, and uh, just watching people pass by and, again, observing the surroundings. And then finally, I was able to go to uh, somewhat of a room. It was still in the ER, but it was it was somewhat of a room. And, uh, and, and I, again, just listened to what was going on. And then finally, after I had a procedure, the next day, I was brought to a semi-private room where I had an opportunity to uh, meet a, an older gentleman that was there getting a pacemaker. Both of us were on the wrong floor, I tell you that. We were not on the cardiac floor. I'm not even sure what floor we were on. But as I sat there and listened to all these things and then meeting him and meeting some of his family, all I could think about was, does this man know Christ? Because I know a lot of the people that I was around didn't know Christ. It was pretty much a characteristic of such. And we were able to talk. In fact, we've even kept in touch since... I've come out of the hospital and since he's come out and have just been praying for him. And by the way, I would encourage you to pray for him too. His name is Cecil. And Cecil needs Christ. And I did my, my best under those circumstances to share Christ with him. But as the, the week went on and people come and go and and hearing all of these, as I said, different things going on, I'm just reminded of the fact that we live in a culture where sin seems to have vanished. We live as if there is no longer any sin, but yet our culture is so seeped in it. It doesn't take but just a couple minutes to, to be re-reminded of that, that it's everywhere. In fact, when I read those statements just a moment ago, the whole idea of, of sin has virtually disappeared from our culture, even though we see the behavior very clearly. Sociologist Marcia Witten noted that in her analysis of 47 tape sermons on the prodigal preached by Baptist and Presbyterian ministers, that sin has almost disappeared from the church as well. She says this, How does the idea of sin fare in the sermons under study here? We should not be surprised to find that communicating notions of sin poses difficulties for many of their pastors. As we've seen here, a closer examination of the sermon suggests the many ways in which the concept of sin has been accommodated to fit secular sensibilities. For while some traditional images of sin are retained in this speech, the language frequently cushions the listeners from their impact as it employs a variety of softening rhetorical devices. It is true that strong biblical words for sin have been erased from our vocabulary. For example, people no longer commit adultery, they have an affair. Corporate executives do not steal, they commit fraud. And we could probably concede in saying that it has not disappeared in the evangelical church, but it has been deflected to those outside our circles who commit 
flagrant sins such as abortion, homosexuality, and murder. And it's easy for us to condemn those obvious sins while virtually ignoring our own. Sins like gossip or pride or envy or bitterness or even lust. And even our lack of those gracious qualities that Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit. In Greek culture, the word sin originally meant to miss the mark. It meant to miss the center of the target. And it was therefore considered a miscalculation or a failure to achieve. The Apostle John defines it in 1 John 3, 4 as lawlessness. He says, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. So the culture may deny it, the church may deflect it, But the Bible still calls it what it is. Sin is sin, and the Bible is not shy at calling it for what it is. And yet we have totally regrouped when it comes to the church because we have now tailored the church in such a way to accommodate the sinner. We certainly don't want to offend the sinner. We somehow want to reach the sinner whom we don't even identify as such. Thomas Watson, in his book on the doctrine of repentance, he says, before a man can come to Christ, he must first come to himself. A man must first recognize and consider what his sin is and know the plague of his heart before he can be duly humbled for it. John Owen even asked, do you mortify sin? Do you make it your daily work? You must always be at it while you live, he says. Do not take a day off from this work. Always be killing sin or it will be killing you. Your position in Christ and the new life that you have in Him does not excuse you from this work. I agree with that. If you're deflecting it, You're calling it by other terms, that certainly tells me that you're not not dealing with it. Our religious pride, our critical attitudes, our unkind speech about others, our impatience, our anger, even our anxiety, all those are serious in the sight of God. And if you look there at Ephesians chapter 4, Paul gives us this list that I just read to you of the sins that they are to put off. And the obvious ones are mentioned as we read in verses 25 to 28, like lying and stealing, and the ones that we tolerate are listed in verses 29 to 31, like corrupt speech and bitterness and anger and clamor and slander and malice. Certainly not an all-conclusive list. But nevertheless, it is a list. In fact, let me show you another list by having you to look at Galatians 
chapter 5. Paul says in verse 19, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. He calls this the deeds of the flesh. He also tells us, In verse 21, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so the Apostle Paul gives us this list by which to evaluate our lives and a list by which he warns the Galatians. What should mark our life is not these things. These things that I just read are things that have to be restrained. And how are we going to restrain something like this if we're not willing to call it what it is? Again, Scripture is very clear by calling it and identifying it as such and calling it sin. And yet today in our culture, that if you call things sin like homosexuality, then you are branded, you're marked, you're told that that is hate speech, And they seek to silence you for it. And I I contend that it's not going to get any better. In fact, I think it's going to get worse. But when you take a list like that I've read, and especially the list like we read in Ephesians 4, he tells us that this is something that has to be put off. Which tells me that this is something, excuse me, that this is something that we have to, by the Spirit of God, put to death in our life. He's already told the Ephesians not to walk like the Gentiles walk, because they didn't learn Christ this way, verse 20. Verse 22, that in reference to their former manner of life, they were to lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. This list that I just read to you is paralleled in Colossians 3. If you look there with me for just a moment, Colossians 3. After telling them in verse 5 to put to death your members which are on the earth, he names them immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which amounts to idolatry. And then he says in verse 8, But now you also must put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you've laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the one or to the image of the one who created him. See, there are things in our life that we have to put off and there are things in our life we have to put on. And as those who have been chosen of God, verse 12, holy and beloved, we're to put on a heart of compassion Kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against 
another. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also you should. But above all, put on love. Put on love. I want us to consider this morning three of these that I've read. And it begins back in Ephesians 4.25. The first one is lying. Lying. Lying is certainly inconsistent with a child of God because we are people of truth. And the word of God that you hold in your hands is truth. Jesus' prayer for the disciples that God would sanctify them by the truth. And then he said, your word is truth. We're people of truth. We're people of the truth. We're people of the book. Look at verse 25. Therefore laying aside falsehood, speak truth each one of you with his neighbor for we are members of one another. He begins verse 25 with a very familiar word, and it's the word therefore. In fact, the word therefore appears also in verse 17. Each time you see the word therefore, it backs you up. In verse 17, when it's used here, he has just been talking about the gifted men that have been placed into the church. He identifies them in verse 11 as apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers. And they've been placed in the church for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. And he also talks about the fact that they have been placed there until we all attain to the unity of the faith, as well as verse 14, to the maturity of the faith, to where verse 15, we're speaking the truth in love. And we're growing up in all things as to Christ. He wanted them to affirm this and not walk any longer like the Gentiles walk. In other words, there is a difference between how you live now as a child of God versus how you lived then as someone who was not a child of God. How did the Gentiles walk? They walked in the futility of their mind, verse 17. Verse 18, they were darkened in their understanding. They were excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them, because of the hardness of their heart. They became callous. They had given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity and greed. He says, this is not you anymore. This is not how you are to conduct your life. In fact, when you go back to Galatians 5, right before he gives that list, he tells them to walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. You have to walk by the Spirit. When you take it forward into Colossians 3, the parallel that we just talked about, it's the same thing. He has talked about this idea of putting off and 
putting on the new man. But he also talked about in Colossians 3, letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. And so in other words, to be those who are people of truth, to be those who are putting off lying and speaking truth with your neighbor you have to walk in total dependence on the Spirit of God. The idea of laying aside means to discard. It means to strip away. It means to cast away. This is an aorist participle in Greek, and it tells us that you are putting it off once and for all. Never again to take it up again. The term he uses for falsehood is just another word for lying. It's the opposite of truth. And it includes every form of dishonesty. Whether it's shading the truth or whether it's exaggeration or whether it's cheating or whether it's a failure to keep promises or a betrayal of confidence or whether it's flattery or whether it's even being dishonest on your taxes. A Christian's word should be absolutely trustworthy. And the reason for that is, and this is to me the the whole foundation of it all, is that God hates lying. God hates lying. Over in Proverbs 6, 16 and 17, it says, These six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven which are an abomination to him. And he mentions a lying tongue. In Proverbs 12, 22, it says, Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. We are people of truth. How careful we should be about shading the truth or white lies or exaggerations or half-truths. None of that should be part of us. You know, God commanded the Israelites to speak truth and not speak lies. In fact, it's given in the ninth commandment, which says you should not bear false witness against your, your neighbor. And bearing false witness, that's just another term for lying. Specifically, we would say the commandment forbids even damaging the character of another person by making statements that are not true. And thus possibly causing him to be punished or even executed. It's really teaching a respect for one's reputation. Leviticus 19.11 says you shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. You see, we have, a, we have a term for this, for people who lie. And what is it? They're liars. Right? But yet, even in our culture today, 
we're not even willing to call it what it is. We have a president that lies all the time. He has a cabinet that lies good majority of the time. You pick up the news each day and there's one lie after another lie after another lie that is sold to you as truth. And it's far from it. And they think that if they tell it long enough, it'll become a truth. And yet we worry about the next generation we should. When truth can't even be found in its leaders. Yeah, that's the culture. But I tend to think of it even being worse in the church. Because this place right here is sacred. This place right here is a place of proclaiming truth. And yet, if we're not committed to it in such a way and our personal lives are caught up in falsehoods and exaggerations and half-truths and cheating and doing other things of such, then what have we done here to the message that's supposed to be coming forth from this pulpit or any pulpit, for that matter, in the church? See, those who speak truth give evidence of something very important. And you know what that is? Salvation. They give evidence of salvation. People that are constantly given over to lies give evidence of a lack of salvation, a lack of deliverance from their sins. The psalmist said in Psalm 24.3, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? And who may stand in His holy place? Here's the answer. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood, has not sworn deceitfully, he shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Here's the man that's truly blessed. But yet... Unbelievers are not marked as people of truth. Here's what Jesus said to those Jews who sought to kill him. John 8, 44, you are of your father the devil. You want to do the desires of your father? He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies. So beloved, every time you lie, you are acting like the devil. Because he is the father of lies. And since God hates truth, it's very clear that he's going to punish all liars. In fact, let me just show you one place over in the book of Revelation Go with me to the end of the book of Revelation. In fact, go to chapter 21. 
It says, but for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable, this is verse 8, and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. That's a pretty serious warning. But God hates it. And God will judge it. And God will judge all liars. Proverbs 19 and verse 9 says, A false witness will not go unpunished. And he who tells lies will perish. They will perish. He won't go unpunished or as... Proverbs 6.19 says he will not be acquitted. He will surely be punished. And he who tells lies will perish. And essentially that's the same meaning as the previous line. That whole negative of will perish is parallel with not go unpunished. He will not go free. He will not be released. So, as children of God, as followers of Christ, we are to put away lying once and for all, and we are to speak truth. Colossians 3 9. It also says the same thing. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self which is renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. In fact, the tense... Forgive me, guys. I keep having this urge to cough. The tense that's used there in Colossians 3.9 was indicating that this was something that some were guilty of. And he tells them to stop. Stop doing this. Don't have a habit of lying. Listen, if you have a habit of sin, that is an eye-opener right there. Because according to 1 John chapter 3, that if, if you have a, a habitual sin in your life, then it's indicating something far serious going on. The unfortunate thing is that some of these believers had carried over their old life. You see it really horribly with the Corinthians. They took all their paganism and brought it into the church. As we were even reading this morning, 1 Corinthians 12... They were even standing up in the assembly and cursing Christ and saying that they were doing this by the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, if you're doing this by the power of the Holy Spirit, you're not going to curse Christ. You're going to give glory to Christ. But he wanted them to stop. He wanted them to put off the old man with his practices that person that they were before they were saved, and to put on the new man, that person that they were now in Christ. 
So he says, lay it aside. Lay aside falsehood and speak truth. Each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. That president imperative wants to exclude all lying. Lay it aside. Linsky says that he doesn't mean putting away falsehood each time we speak to our neighbor and uttering truth instead, but since we have once put away the lie or the falsehood, let us not use any of it when we speak to our neighbor. This is the same putting away that was mentioned in verse 22. Even the tense is the same. He says, this is the great lie that rules all who have not put off the old man. The lie which they are darkened and blinded, alienated because of the ignorance and hardness of heart. The lie that impels to all uncleanness in life. This lie lies about God and man and sin and punishment and godliness and morality. It's the natural man's religion. It appears in multiple forms, even though here it's viewed as a unit. He says, truth in reality, every lie is a fiction, a pretended reality that asserts that something is so when it is really not so at all, or that something is not so when it really is so. To trust any lie is to head for a great wreck especially to trust the lie which substitutes fiction for the saving realities of God and the gospel. The wreck that ensures is irreparable. Now verse 25 is a quotation of Zechariah 8.16. And it goes from the negative prohibition to the positive command. Speak truth each one of you with his neighbor. And all of that is possible because of Christ. It's only possible because of Christ. David's prayer in Psalm 51, 6, as he's confessing his sin of adultery and murder, He admits that God desires truth in the innermost being. Truth from the heart. Even the Apostle John said in 1 John 3.18, we're not to love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. So again, we're people of the truth. And so putting on the new self that's been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth, is laying aside lying. But notice the second one he gives in verse 26. Not just laying aside falsehood, but he also mentions anger. He says, Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not give the devil an opportunity. Even mentions down in verse 31 about putting off anger. When we are angry, 
It is to be righteous anger. There is a difference. And I hope that you know righteous anger more than you know unrighteous anger. We all know unrighteous anger, don't we? But he says there, be angry and yet do not sin. That's the idea. This attitude of indignation should be at evil, not at each other. It's like in chapter 6, when he talks about the conflict that's going on in the body of Christ, he says in verse 12 of chapter 6, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against rulers and against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And the sooner that we understand that, the, the sooner we'll understand that our brothers and sisters are, should not be the point of our contention. They are not our enemy. We're not each other's enemy. The enemy is Satan. The enemy is the father of lies. The enemy is the one who came to steal, kill, and destroy. And so the anger that he's talking about here is this anger that doesn't produce sin. Look at it again in verse 26. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. Essentially, that even the right kind of anger could be used by the devil. Therefore, it has to be resolved immediately. Let me show you a couple examples of this by having you to turn, first of all, to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. In Mark chapter 3, Jesus again enters the synagogue, and there was a man there whose hand was withered. And they were watching him to see if he would heal on the Sabbath so that he might accuse them. Or they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he said to them, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. Instead of marveling at the miracle and what the miracle was pointing and pointing about Jesus, that he is, according to Mark 1.1, the Son of God, they plotted in how that they might destroy him. But Jesus was angered at their hardness of heart. This is anger at evil. This is anger that was done against the person of Christ. This is anger that was against His will. Anger that was against His purpose. And the Lord Jesus abhorred their hardness. Another place is over in the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verse 12. 
It says, After this he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remember that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. And of course they asked, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? And Jesus said, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, It took 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Jehovah's Witnesses, by the way, don't like that verse. Being angry and not sinning is righteous indignation. It's anger at sin. It's anger at evil. It's anger that you are displaying toward that one who has done evil against Christ. See, Jesus was always angered when the Father was maligned or when others were mistreated, but He was never selfishly angry at what was done against Him. We are to have anger at sin, but not anger that causes us to sin. Be angry and yet do not sin. That's the check and restraint. Anger that is sin is anger that is self-defensive. It's anger that is self-destructive or self-serving. It's anger that is resentful of what is done against oneself. It's the anger that leads to murder and to God's judgment. Aristotle said this, anybody can become angry. That's easy. But to be angry with the right person, to the right degree, at the right time, for the right purpose, and in the right way, that is not easy. So he says in verse 26, we have to resolve it immediately, even the right kind of anger. He says, be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. Fritz Reinecker says that the day of anger should be the day of reconciliation. Many times we apply this verse in relationships. We apply it in marriage. And we say don't go to sleep at night if you and your spouse are angry at one another. Well, I don't disagree with that. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Resolve it. Anger that isn't resolved, the devil uses, even the right kind. And it could turn into bitterness. We're told in Hebrews 12, 15, to see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness spring up causing trouble and thereby causing many to be defiled. 
Look down even at verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. If you don't resolve it, it gives the devil an opportunity to carry out his purposes. If we don't resolve our anger immediately, the devil can feed our anger with self-pity and self-righteousness and vengeance and defense of our rights and every other selfish sin. So what are we going to do when we are angry? Well, I think that we need to do several things. One is that we need to be slow to anger, not quick to be angry. There's always danger about being quick to get angry. Proverbs 14, 17 says, A quick-tempered man acts foolishly, and a man of evil devices is hated. So don't be considered one who is quick-tempered. Proverbs 15, 18 says, A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but the slow to anger calms a dispute. Sometimes we see unbelievers act this way, to where they're more calm and cool than a believer is. We have to be gentle, gentle in our response. Proverbs 15 once says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. If you're quick to be angry, then all you're going to do is make the matter worse. We need to have a cool spirit, as Proverbs 17, 27 says. And we have to realize that there is power in our tongue, right? James chapter 3 tells us about the power of the tongue. It tells us that it's set on fire by hell. It's full of restless evil. So, putting on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, we lay aside falsehood, we speak truth to each one of our neighbors because we're members of one another. We are angry and yet we do not sin. We don't let the sun go down on our anger and nor do we give the devil an opportunity. And third is in verse 28. And the third one is stealing. He says, He who steals must steal no longer, but rather must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. See, the old self is inclined to all this. It's inclined to lie. It's inclined to have sinful anger. And it's certainly inclined to steal. Two things I used to deal with as a principal in a school was stealing and lying. And sometimes it was hard to tell which was worse. Certainly lying was used to cover up the stealing. The word that Paul uses here for steals is the word klepto. Kleptomaniac is one who has this reoccurrent urge to steal. He's a kleptomaniac. 
And stealing certainly takes on many forms. You have grand larceny, larceny, which to even non-payment of debts, witnessing at work on your employer's time could be a form of theft. If you're not careful, I am for sharing Christ at work, believe me. But we need to make sure that when we're doing that, we're still doing our job for which we've been hired to do, right? We saw recently with the Southern Baptist Convention the sin of plagiarism where Mr. Linton was found out to be stealing his sermons from J.D. Greer. I know the temptation is there. You're sitting there in your study and you're maybe in a rush or maybe you're just not getting an understanding of the text. The temptation is there to take it from someone else and call it yours. But there is, is danger to this as well. For example, over in the book of Joshua, in chapter 6, when the Israelites were told in going in to take the land of Jericho, they were told to not take of any of the accursed things. But unfortunately, there was one who did. His name was Achan. And when he confessed his sin, finally, to Joshua, Joshua 7.21, here's what he said. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And behold, they are concealed in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath it. He saw these beautiful things and had to have them for himself. And he violated the very command of God who said not to do this. But people do this every day. And God said in the eighth commandment in Exodus 20:15, you should not steal. Do not steal. He said it again in Leviticus 19.11 and Deuteronomy 5.19. Paul says that this has to be put off. And rather the one must labor performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with one who has need. God has always, always set a premium on work. We tend to think when we go back to Genesis 3 that, that the curse is work. No, that ain't the curse. Did you know they worked in the garden before the fall? God placed the man there to tend to care for the garden. The curse is the toil that would be in with it as you're trying to yield the crops. The ground would produce for you thorns and thistles. Now 
God has always put a premium on laboring with your own hands. In fact, we're even told in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 that if someone is not willing to work, then he should not be able to eat either. You know, and I hate to admit this, but I have a righteous indignation against people that take advantage of other people when it comes to issues like this. The other day I was with my kids and we were driving past River City and we saw a man on the side of the road asking for help, but he was in a wheelchair and he had one leg. I told them, I said, I could help that man. The people that have trouble helping is the guy standing there with the backpack, the dog, and the cigarette hanging out of his mouth. I'm not saying he doesn't have a need, but just like I told one man one day who approached me at a gas pump for some help, I told him, I said, I need to think about this. Cody and I walked inside the, the store, and came back out, and he greeted me at the door, and I said, I want to tell you something. I said, I really have a hard time helping you with that cigarette hanging out of your mouth. You don't appear to me as someone who has this need that you presented to me. Are you lying to me? That's <laughs> what so I started asking him. I helped him a little bit, didn't help him with what he was asking for. And, and in essence, you just have to trust the Lord, but I have trouble there. I struggle with that. I'm not against helping somebody, but I'm against people that fabricate it. I'm against people that make it up. They're too lazy to do what they need to do to take care of themselves. And I know that's not always the case. In some cases, we just don't know. But we are to labor for two things. One, our own needs and the needs of others. And laboring for your own needs is working. And laboring for others, he says here, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Now, again, I want to remind you the context here is the church. The context here is the body of Christ. We're not talking about outside the body of Christ. God had commands for that, of dealing with the poor, helping the poor. But here we're talking about the church. And the sad thing is, is unfortunately, that we, we, we tend to treat the church sometimes like we treat the world. I remember, I'll never forget this, but I remember at one church I was at and this young man came up to church on Wednesday night after we were done and we were all out there talking and he had a need and, and uh, one of the men decided he would help him, but it's, it's what he said that struck me. He said, if you don't use this money for which you have told us that it was for, I pray that you're in fear of hell. In fact, if I remember it correctly, it was almost like he was telling him to go to hell. I was shocked. I was dumbfounded. And he also admitting the struggle there. The struggle is there but I don't think I'd ever say that to somebody. 
We tend to use opportunities like that to share Christ with somebody, right? Help their physical need as you talk about their spiritual need. But what about the church? What about the people in the church? You know, if we're not involved in each other's lives to, to the extent of the one another's, then we don't really know what's going on in each other's life until we read it as a status on Facebook. It shouldn't become a status on Facebook, on social media. We should know what's going on in each other's life. Shouldn't we? I mean, how are we going to have compassion for each other? How are we going to love each other if we don't even know what's going on in each other's life? Romans 12, 13 says that we are to contribute to the needs of the saints. And the idea of contributing or distributing, is, it comes from that word fellowship. Koinonia. It's sharing with them. It's having a common joint participation and a mutual interest. It's a commonality, a partnership. A mutual sharing. Kenneth Wee says the exhortation is to make oneself a sharer or partner in the needs of our fellow saints in the sense that we act as if those needs were our own. We would satisfy our own needs, and the exhortation is to satisfy those of our Christian brother. Kent Hughes adds, Our care for brothers and sisters in Christ should reach down into our wallets and purses and cost us. When Christ's church is living in love, the needs of its people are met through sharing and caring. James even uses this as a test of true living faith. Yeah, we need to turn to James chapter 2 for just a moment as we bring this to a close. James chapter 2. Look at verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but has no works, can that faith save him? In other words, can that kind of faith save him? If you say you have faith and you don't have any works to back it up, can that kind of faith save you? What's, what's implied here? No. And then he gives this illustration. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Again, I remind you that this is a member of the church. If a brother or sister, that is a member of this church. You see your brother or sister and they have a need. James says they're without clothing, which is referring to being poorly and insufficiently clothed. The word means to be scantily or poorly clothed, poorly dressed. And it suggests that they were cold and miserable due to the lack of proper clothes. And further, he says that 
They're in need of daily food. It doesn't indicate starvation, but rather an insufficient nourishment for normal, healthy living. This is a reference to those who are deprived of the necessities of life. The provision given is words without acts of compassion. He says, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and be filled. And the the, the idea of departing in peace is equivalent to God bless you. It's heartless. It's a foolish statement. It's a total disregard for the welfare of of, of others to, to, to the point of absurdity. And even to further be warmed and be filled, that's like saying, well, God take care of you. While you have no intention of being a channel for that care. Some even understand it as a prayer. May you be warmed and fed by God. But you have here the middle and the passive voice that renders it be warmed and be filled and it suggests an even more indifferent, cruel, and sarcastic attitude which in effect says warm and feed yourself. And yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? It's heartless. It's an outrageous comment. It has no use It's totally worthless. Just as professed compassion without kindness and care is phony, so is that faith which is nothing but an empty claim. John even says it in 1 John 3, 17 and 18. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? So children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. You see your brother in need, and you just close up your heart of compassion, not willing to meet that need. You know, I'll just be honest with you, and I've told you this before, so it's not nothing new. But one of the things that does bother me in the church is that if you have a brother or sister in a need... And instead of that person who's been made aware of it meeting that need, they come to the pastor as if he is the official need meter. As if he's the only one that can meet that need. Now, I'm not against helping my brother or sister in Christ. Not at all. But we've got to have some compassion, don't we? See, part of the new man is this. Stop lying. Stop having unrighteous anger. And stop stealing. Simple as that. And you can stop those things by the power of the Spirit of God in you, whom you have. It says in Romans 8 that we put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. 
So we have to labor for the needs of ourselves and the needs of others, and we have to share with the saints and meet others' needs, and we have to make sure that we're not giving over to the old man. The thing about the old man is he wants to resurrect, doesn't he? Ralph Venning said in his book, The Sinfulness of Sin, he says, Sin is contrary to and sets against the glory of God. And all that should and would give glory to Him or has any tendency to do so. Confession of sin and repentance gives glory to God. And sin endeavors to obstruct and hinder this. It began to practice upon Adam and Eve and still carries on this trade among the children of men. John Owen said, It is our duty to be perfecting holiness in the fear of God, to be growing in grace every day so that our inner nature should be renewed day by day. This cannot be accomplished without the daily mortifying of sin. Sin sets its strength against every act of holiness and every degree of spiritual growth. We will not be making progress in holiness without walking over the bellies of our lusts. He who does not kill sin along the way is making no progress in his journey. So, beloved, do Colossians 3, 5, and mortify the deeds of the body. And I want to leave you with this. Romans 13, 12 and following. It says, The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Don't make any provision for the flesh. Beloved, that's my encouragement to you today. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for the reminder that we're not the same people that we used to be. We're different now. And I know every now and then we, we fall into some of the sins of our past. Lord, help us to be killing sin. Help us to put it aside and help us to walk in holiness.